people who haven't died can still leave their spirit in a place, and they spend the rest of their lives searching for something, because they have this empty feeling. They don't know what it is, though. They don't realize that their spirit is still waiting for them at the place where they left it. Silent screams bounce around my head like an impending storm, brewing into a force that will escape in a wild dance of chaos and be lost forever if I don't stop to write them down. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Prelude to a Scream, podcast fiction by Mark Leslie. I'm your host, Mark Leslie, and this time around we have something very special. We have a story called Spirits, which has never been published before. It's the first time I'm doing this on the podcast, but it's a long one. It runs about 32 minutes. So without further ado, I'm going to get right to the story, and I'll meet you here at the end for some story notes. Spirits by Mark Leslie Sitting here on the bus stop bench is startlingly comfortable, even though the sheets of misty rain have already cut through my jacket, plastering my shirt to my skin. The cold dampness doesn't bother me, because my mind is otherwise occupied. By thoughts of Sally. I haven't thought about her in years. Ever since I left Ottawa, actually. But now that I'm back, back here especially, the vacant lot across from where I'm sitting... The lot where the old Phoenix movie theater used to stand stares back at me and reminds me of her. Reminds me of that night. Do you believe in spirits? Sally asked, the flashlight throwing long shadows up her face. You mean ghosts? Rob admired how her features could still seem attractive even in such an eerie light. No, Sally said, her face disappearing as the flashlight clicked off. He heard the echoes of her movement in the large, empty theater. The complete darkness, coupled with the serious tone in her voice, was suddenly unsettling. Not ghosts. Spirits. There's a difference? Uh-huh. Something touched his hand in the darkness. At first he flinched and tried to pull away. Then he realized it was Sally's hand. He squeezed. She squeezed back. He let out a deep breath. For a moment he had been uneasy, but things were okay again. That's how the relationship seemed to work. That was why they were in this abandoned movie theater, after all. Rob was making plans to go away to college, and they'd been talking about the consequences of his moving to a city four hours away while she stayed in Ottawa. They each got a bad feeling about being separated like that, and so they did what they usually did when they were having a minor crisis. They came to the place where they'd had their first date. The Phoenix. What they had meant to each other that evening of their first date what their entire relationship meant, came back to them whenever they went inside. As corny as it had seemed to their friends, it had become a ritual that worked for them. Only now, the theater was closed down and boarded up. But they didn't let that stop them. It was exciting, actually. One of the things Rob had always liked about Sally was her sense of excitement, of adventure, her spirit. And she was definitely showing it tonight. Sneaking to the back of the abandoned building in the middle of the night, climbing the fire escape to the roof, prying the old service door open and slipping inside, scrambling through the darkness with the light of a single flashlight beam to guide them, finding their way into the theater house, making out in the darkness. Yes, this was the gist of what Sally and Rob were all about. A ghost, 
Sally said, nestling herself onto Rob's lap, is a specter. It's supposed to represent the lost soul of someone who has died. Isn't that what a spirit is? It can be. But a spirit can also be something more. For example, take my teddy. Poofy bear? Rob giggled. Yeah. N now listen, I'm serious. Okay. I've had him ever since I was a baby, and I've always kept him close by. I talk to him. I sleep with him every night. Hey, I'm jealous. Shh. And I shower him with love and affection. So? Well, some people believe that because I've spent so much time with him, because I've projected so many emotions and feelings onto him, that Poofy somehow absorbed it all and can feed it back to me. So you're saying that because you spent 18 years loving him, that Poofy, a stuffed animal, loves you? Sort of. Sally shifted in his lap, turning to face him in the darkness. When I'm sad or angry, I hold Poofy Bear and he's able to make me feel better. I feel protected and safe whenever I hold him, because he provides me with a feeling of love and affection. An echo of the affection you've given him? Yeah. But this doesn't just happen with objects, she said. It can happen with a place. People who haven't died can still leave their spirit in a place. And they spend the rest of their lives searching for... something. Because they have this empty feeling. They don't know what it is, though. They don't realize their spirit is still waiting for them at the place where they left it. Does this story have a point? I'm getting to it. Here's the good part. The part that'll freak you out. I'm ready to be freaked. She kissed him and then pulled away. I've heard that this theater has a spirit. A chill ran down Rob's spine. It does? Yeah. My mom told me about something that happened here a long time ago. There was this lady who worked here at the popcorn stand. She was going out with a projectionist. Whenever they had a chance, they would, you know, get it on in the projection booth. Eventually, the woman got pregnant. And apparently it ended up that she was also working here the evening she went into a premature labor. She went up to the projection booth to see her boyfriend, and by the time she got to the top of the stairs, the baby started coming. She gave birth right here in the theater. A and the baby died and now haunts the theater? Rob asked, fidgeting in his seat. No, no, the baby lived. I think she gave it away for adoption or something. But ever since that day, whenever they ran a film... Some people could hear this strange sound, really faint, behind the soundtrack of the film. It was the sound of a baby crying. Where was it coming from? They didn't know, because every time they stopped the film to listen, they couldn't hear it anymore. They could only hear it when a film was running. Nobody could figure it out. Rob felt goosebumps rise along his arms. People said, she continued, that what they were hearing was the spirit of the baby that had been born here. The Phoenix baby, they called it. Oh, that's bull, Rob said. It's one of those urban myths. My mom said it was in the papers and everything. So, what happened? What do you mean? Well, we've seen movies here and never heard the baby crying. When did the crying stop, and why? I'm not sure. Maybe one day the baby returned all grown up to see a movie or something, and without knowing it, reclaim the spirit left behind all those years ago. Ah, the whole story is made up. It is not. It's true. Sally leaned forward and began to imitate the cry of a baby. Laughing, 
Rob ran his hands down her back and then feathered his fingers forward across her ribs and up under her breasts. Ooh, tickles! She squirmed, trying to get out of his lap. He pulled her down, continuing to tickle her. Stop it, stop it, stop it! She laughed, ducking down under his arms. Something hit the floor just beside them in the darkness. Now you've done it, Sally said, climbing from his lap. That was the flashlight. Rob cocked his head to hear the soft rumble of the flashlight as it rolled. It hit something, stopped for a second, and continued on. Then it hit something else, and stopped for good. What now? Rob asked. I, I guess now that we've lost our only source of light, the monsters will come out. Yeah, well, that's only in movies, and this isn't a movie. But it is a movie theater. The theater with the spirit of the Phoenix Baby. What's gonna happen? Is a zombie baby going to attack us? Watch out! He's got a rattler! He laughed. But come on, I'm serious. How do we find our way out without the flashlight? Rob heard Sally shift in the seat beside him, felt the warmth of her bare arm as it brushed against his. For an obscure moment he had visions of the first time he'd brushed his lips against her bare skin, and longed never to leave. We could guess our way back out, she said, or we could try to find the flashlight. What are the chances it rolled straight down to the very front? Slim. We're about three-quarters of the way up, and it didn't sound like it rolled all the way down, maybe only halfway. She took his hand in the darkness. He bent and kissed the back of her hand. We'd better start looking, because when I make love to you here, I want to be able to look into your gorgeous eyes. Keep talking. I want to see the beautiful curve of your cheek, the silky magic of your hair cascading past your naked shoulders and over your... Sally sighed loudly and was up out of her seat. Okay, let's find the flashlight. I'll tell you one thing, though, Rob said as they moved down the slope of the aisle to start their search. I've never been bored on a date with you. Thanks. I've been horny, excited, stimulated, sometimes pissed off, lost, and trapped in the dark in an abandoned movie theater, but never bored. She pulled her hand away. Jerk. No, I mean it, Sally. As strange a situation as we're in right now, I'm glad I'm in it with you. I'm glad we came here again. Being with you, no matter what we're doing, makes me realize you're very special. I can't imagine being without you when I go away to school. Sally, I... A loud crash echoed through the darkness. What was that? Sally whispered. Rob whipped his head around. Where did it come from? I couldn't tell with the echo, but, but it sounded like metal falling. Did it fall over on its own, or did someone knock it over? Okay. Time to find the flashlight, serious. Holding hands, they descended a number of rows and felt around in the dark for the flashlight. They worked methodically and quietly. When they checked three aisles, Sally spoke up. Maybe it was nothing, you know. Maybe a small animal knocked something over, rats or mice. His hand bumped against something. Wait a second. What, did you find it? He wrapped his hand around a cylindrical object. The flashlight. He picked it up and stood. Did you find it? She asked again, grabbing his arm with both her hands. Yeah, he said and put his free arm around her. She hugged him back and then pulled away. So? Rob ran his hand along the plastic case of the flashlight. Well, she said, turn it on. I'm afraid to. What if I turn it on and it doesn't work? What if it broke when it hit the seats? She grabbed it from him. Don't say things like that. Jeez, let's just turn it on and get out of here. Well, Rob said. He waited a moment. It was still pitch black. 
Well, turn it on. Her voice was solemn. I just did. The distinct sound of a door slamming shut echoed through the theater. That wasn't a rat or mouse, Rob said. Vermin don't use doors. Maybe the sound was the owner or something, or, or maybe... Oh, boy. What? It could be the police. Maybe someone saw us sneaking around on the roof and called the cops on us. But we didn't do anything. We aren't vandals. It's still breaking and entering, even if we didn't break anything. They stood in silence for a moment. Sally nudged him. There's no light anywhere. If the owner or the police were inside, wouldn't they at least have a flashlight? You're right. So maybe the door closing was the sound of them leaving. She took his hand. And if so, we'd better split before they come back in. They moved up the aisle, shuffling slowly to the top of the theater house. There are three stairwells here, Rob said. Yeah, we came down the middle one. That leads to the upper floor, doesn't it? I think so. Still holding hands, they went up the stairs. At the top, Rob felt along the wall. They inched their way forward until his hand came upon a doorknob. He turned it and pushed. The heavy door opened. Is this it? Not sure. He paused and guided her free hand to hold the door once he passed through so it wouldn't slam in her face. Then he walked forward. After a few more steps, the door sprang back and shut loudly behind them. They both jumped. Sorry, Sally muttered. They giggled and moved forward until Rob kicked something small. It clattered along the cement floor, a hollow, tinny sound. Whoops. He walked around it, and his outstretched hand hit a wall of brick. He felt sideways along the coarse brick until his hand slipped off into open space, then hit something just as solid, but very smooth. Glass. What the? We came the wrong way, didn't we? Uh, I think so. He turned and wrapped both his arms around her. She hugged him back. Something in one of her hands dug into his back as she held him. What's that in your hand? Oh, it's the, uh, flashlight. But it's broken. You might as well pitch it. It's no good to us now. There was a long pause before Sally spoke. Rob? Yeah. I don't want to let go of it. Her trembling voice broke on the last word. Rob held her tightly as she shook with silent tears. Suddenly, a small flash of light filled the room to the sound of something hitting the floor beside them. They both gasped. It's working! Sally said. When I dropped it, it came on for a second. Rob released her and knelt, feeling along the floor. He found it and shook it. The light flashed on briefly yet again. What did you do? I joggled it a bit. Maybe when we first dropped it, the impact misaligned the batteries or something. Do it again. The light came on. This time it stayed on. There was enough light for Rob to see her face again, and the look of concern in her eyes was unsettling. He'd never seen such a pained look before and almost wished the light would go out again so he wouldn't have to see it. So where exactly are we? He turned and aimed the beam at the wall. Set into the brick wall was a thin rectangular window. We're in the projection room, Sally muttered. Rob twisted to face her again and saw her looking down at the empty film canister on the floor. Then he passed the beam along the floor to a small narrow mattress perched on a makeshift cot up against the far wall. On top of this cot were a couple of worn and battered blankets. Someone lives here, Sally said. Okay, that's our cue to leave. He pulled on her arm and started to move toward the door, but stopped almost immediately. Blocking the doorway stood a tall, gangly man. Beep. 
Being inside the cafe across the street from the empty theater lot warms my damp, wrinkled skin, just as the coffee I cradle before me warms my insides. But a chill still runs deep inside that neither the warm room nor the coffee can curb. The exact moment of staring him directly in the face has returned to me in countless nightmares. I'd wake up screaming, covered in a cold sweat, with the image of those deeply shadowed eye sockets within which I could never make out the eyes. I always knew he was staring at me, though, staring right through me. But for the life of me, each time I dreamt of that pale, thin face and those hauntingly sunken eyes, I could never remember where he was from. It comes back to me now, though. It all comes back to me. How my immediate reaction was to flash the light in his face and then stab the flashlight into his stomach. The gangly man doubled over easily and I shoved him out of the doorway. As he staggered back against the wall, I kicked him in the ribs, brought the flashlight down on his skull and pounded both of my elbows onto his back. As he crumpled to the floor, I hauled Sally out of the doorway and passed him. Both of us screaming, we somehow picked the right stairway and ran for the exit. The rest of that night is still a blur. But what happened between us next, that's all becoming startlingly clear. Why haven't you called? I've been busy. Look, Rob, I can't talk now. Sally, wait! The dial tone was his only answer. For the past three weeks, that had been the only type of answer she'd given him. A closed door, a dial tone, it was all the same. He wondered if it was because of his violent reaction to the stranger and the fact both Sally and Rob were convinced that Rob's attack had seriously injured or killed him. He'd never behaved that way before and had only done so that night out of self-defense and fear. After all, they had no idea what the stranger had intended to do to them. And Rob did make an anonymous call to 911 from a payphone, telling them about an injured man and, and the abandoned theater. But there was nothing about a mysterious death or injury that night in any of the local media. And he couldn't get her to admit. That was why she was avoiding him, because she wouldn't even speak to him for more than the words it took to say goodbye. He stared at the phone receiver a while longer and then slammed it down. Enough was enough. He'd had to march over to her place and confront her. He felt bad enough about his attack on the stranger. He needed Sally's reassurance that he'd done it to protect them. He just couldn't go on like this. When he arrived at her parents' home, he knocked and waited. No answer. He knocked again, harder. Still no answer. Her father's car wasn't in the driveway, and given that it was Sunday, it meant they were probably visiting Sally's grandmother at the nursing home. But Sally never went with them. She couldn't handle seeing her grandmother kept like an animal in a zoo, treated like she was too dumb and frail to handle being outside of that protective cage, stored away only to be seen by the outside world during pre-allotted visiting time slots. The more he thought of it, the more he was sure he needed to explain to her his violent reaction that night. Rob knocked again, waited, then tried the door. It was unlocked. He pushed it open. Hello? No answer. He walked inside. The house was quiet and very much like a museum with its antique furniture, artwork, and sculptures, all lit with their own small sets of lights. He'd never felt very comfortable in either the living room or dining room and could never imagine having grown up in such a house. There were so many fragile-looking things to break. He looked across at the stairs which led up to Sally's room, the only cozy room in the house. Perhaps she had headphones on and couldn't hear him knocking. It had happened before. 
He headed up the stairs and was about to call out once more when a strange thought struck him. What if she's not alone? After all, the best time Sally and Rob could sneak in some frisky playtime was on Sundays when her parents were out of the house for several hours. What if the reason she'd been avoiding him was because there was some other guy? He froze. He couldn't move. Couldn't decide what he should do. Should he just accept that she was with someone else and leave? No. After all, he had no proof. It would be stupid to leave with that assumption. But it would also be stupid to walk in on Sally and some other guy rolling naked beneath the sheets. That thought turned his stomach. No. He had to give her the benefit of the doubt. And regardless, if she didn't want him in her life, she'd have to tell him to his face. Fixing his determination, he headed up the stairs. Her bedroom door was closed. He paused again, listening. If she was with someone, it would be fair to make some noise to let them know that they weren't alone. He coughed, waited, then reached for the doorknob. Something sharp dug into the back of his right ankle, and he spun around, sending a fist into empty air. His foot kicked out, and he felt a strange small weight clinging to it. His kick, combined with the unstopped punch, threw him off balance, and he fell against Sally's door. Reaching out for balance, he knocked over a skinny table with a vase. The vase broke as it hit the floor. The tiny furry thing attached to Rob's ankle released its hold and bolted down the stairs, lighting out a high-pitched battle cry. Rob grabbed his ankle. Cootie, you little bastard! He shook his head while examining the tiny bite marks Cootie, Sally's cat, had left on his ankle. To Sally, the cat was loving and tender, existing only to rub against her and seek affection. But whenever Sally left the room, the cat had never once failed to assert hatred towards Rob. He glared at him, hissed at him, swiped at him, attacked his feet, almost as if it were jealous of Sally's affection for Rob. Discovering that his ankle wasn't bleeding, he got to his feet and stood in front of the bedroom door. Whatever had been going on in there, there had been plenty of warning to become presentable. He knocked again, then opened the door. But there was nobody inside. Now he felt like he was trespassing. It seemed okay to enter the house when he thought someone was home and they just couldn't hear him knocking. But now it suddenly felt wrong. He walked over to her desk to find a piece of paper and a pencil. He'd leave a note explaining why he'd come, how he thought she was here, and how the vase in the hall had gotten broken. When he got to the desk, he paused. Something seemed different about her room. Sally's room had always been plastered with posters, clippings, photos, and mementos from her life, and they served to promote the variety of who she was. There were photos of the people in her life, postcards from family and friends around the world, ticket stubs from concerts she'd been to, even bus transfers from important bus drives she'd taken. And it had always fascinated Rob that a good way to decipher how Sally felt at any given time was to see what new items she had strewn about her desk, tacked to her bulletin board, and taped to the edges of her dresser mirror. Sally always had something pinned, taped, or hanging in her room, but it was always varied. If you could call it anything, you'd have to call it eclectic. But now, only three weeks since he'd last seen her, that was what was different. As Rob scanned the contents of the desk, the items stuck to her bulletin board and the photos taped to her mirror, he found one thing in common. They all had something to do with the phoenix. There were photos of both the outside and inside of the theater plastered all over her mirror. There was a floor plan of the entire building with specific sections marked off in red pen. He noted some of the headlines on photocopied newspaper articles from the early 50s. Cry of the Phoenix Baby. Phoenix Baby haunts patrons, mystifies police. 
Quickly scanning through the articles, Rob noted they verified the story Sally had told him that night in the theater. He flipped through the articles until he found another large headline dated almost two decades later. The crying at the Phoenix stops. The article explained that for no apparent reason, the crying simply ceased. There was a photo of a man standing near the projectors. The caption read, Greg Bartholomew, projectionist at the Phoenix, ponders the mystery of the Phoenix baby. I've never heard it myself since I just started working here, but I can't believe that all these people were just hearing things. Something strange had to have been going on. Rob stared at the photo again. There was something familiar about the man, something he couldn't quite place. Then it hit him. Bartholomew was tall, very thin, almost gangly. In the photo, his eyes were shadowed by a protruding brow. It couldn't be. Rob looked over at the photos bordering the edge of Sally's mirror. They were all shots of Greg Bartholomew, only he looked more gangly, his eyes more sunken than the photo from the 70s. He looked more like he did when they saw him a few weeks ago in the doorway of the projection room. One was a profile of him walking down the street after dark. Another was him standing in the back alley, digging in a garbage can for something. The third, taken almost straight on, was him leaning against a building, hand out, head down, begging. And all of the photos had that slightly blurry quality you see on candid tabloid shots. They were all taken at weird angles, as if from behind a parked car, around the corner of a building, or from a moving vehicle. Sally was obsessed with this man. What could she possibly be up to? What are you doing here? The words dug into him the same way Cootie's teeth had. Rob spun, and his jaw dropped open. He knew it was Sally, but she never looked like this. Never looked so worn and unconcerned about her parents. Never looked so... disheveled. It was as if she'd given up focusing on anything but the Phoenix and Greg Bartholomew. Like a monk devoting his life to God, Sally seemed to have forsaken all other things. Well? Sally, what are you doing? These articles, these pictures! That's my business. Why haven't you talked to me? Why haven't you told me about any of this? God, I've been worried sick that I might have killed a man, and you couldn't tell me you had proof that he's okay? I told you I don't want to see you or talk to you. I told you to leave me alone. Sally, please talk to me. I didn't mean to hurt him. It was self-def... Get out, Rob. I'm busy. Busy with what? With stalking this man? What are you doing? He's a homeless bum. He's crazy. He's not crazy. How do you know? He's the Phoenix baby. What? He's the Phoenix baby. He left his spirit there when he was born. When he returned as an adult to work as the projectionist, the crying stopped. Don't you get it, Rob? Don't you understand? His only destiny was to return to the theater and reclaim his spirit. But now he's tied to that spot because his spirit is tying him there. He can't leave without leaving his spirit behind. He needs my help. He needs to be locked away. He's nuts. He could hurt you, Sally. Don't go near him anymore. Stay away from him. He won't hurt me, she said, and a strange look entered her eyes. Sally, you're not... you don't mean... you don't love him, do you? Her face paled at those words, but she said nothing. You don't know what you're getting into. He could seriously hurt you, the same way you hurt him. If I have anyone to fear right now, it's you. You never let me explain. He's clouding your judgment. Please stay away from him and give me a chance to explain. Don't tell me what to do. Please, Sally. You need help. I need you to leave me alone. Sally! Rob stepped toward her. She flinched as if she thought he would strike her. And that, more than any of her words, let him know that he'd lost her. He hung his head down and stepped back. 
Rob, I have to do this. I must do this. I can't explain, but I need you to leave. He turned and looked at Poofy sitting on her bed and taking in the entire scene. Take care of her, he thought to the bear. Fighting back tears, he walked past her, out the room, out of her life, and never spoke with her since. Losing her love. Losing her trust. That was the hardest blow I'd ever faced. It hurt me so deeply. It still hurts. The waitress who just refilled my coffee can see my tears, but I don't care. The emotions come back with an incredible intensity as I sit here and remember in a silent reunion with the painful memories. Maybe that was why I blocked most of it out. Chose not to remember. Maybe that was why I was never able to have a successful relationship with anyone since then. Maybe that was why my marriage failed after only six months. Perhaps I was afraid that the best thing for any woman I'd grown to care about was to leave her alone. Irrational, I know. But often your first important relationship affects the rest in the subtlest and most powerful ways. But now that I remember, now that I recall the scene in Sally's bedroom, the choice I made to leave her alone, I wonder if I really did the right thing. Should I have tried to help her? Should I have persisted? Whatever happened to her after that, and, and was it my fault? I kept tabs on her, very secretly, of course, the way the rejected party often does at the end of a relationship. I remember listening in when a group of friends were talking about her and hearing stories that one day she'd simply disappeared, ran off somewhere, leaving a note to her parents to say goodbye. And I remember thinking it had been my fault. Why hadn't I helped her? Then again, I sometimes think perhaps she united with Greg Bartholomew. Maybe they were destined to be together. Maybe she nursed him back into society with her gentle and caring ways. And if that's what made her happy, then I guess it was for the best. But that still doesn't make it hurt any less. I grasp my coffee cup and gaze out into the rain. It's still misty, but easier to see through. As I stare at the empty lot where the theater used to be, I swear I can hear something. Crying. Even through the window, through the rain, across the street, and over the sound of traffic, I can hear a soft crying. My eyes pierce the darkness of the lot, scan every corner until I see, propped up against the north wall, a pile of garbage from the furniture shop next door. Amidst the cardboard boxes and garbage bags, there's a thin, dark, human-shaped form. That small, thin shape, huddled to fight the rain, and the crying piercing my ears him. The building went down years ago, but he never left. He couldn't. His spirit tied him there. I pull a bill from my wallet and leave it on the table. Then I walk out of the cafe, instantly re-soaked, chilled. The crying is louder. Now I'm certain I'll finally get my answer. I cross the street, shivering and wet, but not caring. I move past the bus stop, across the sidewalk, and approach the pile of garbage. The crying becomes an intense buzzing in my ears, a mantra that pulls me forward. The lone figure, huddled there without protection from the elements, seems to mock me, my life, all that I've taken for granted. Guilt courses through me again for remembering how I'd struck him that night years ago out of fear. And fear over what? A helpless, undernourished man living hand to mouth ever since the theater closed down? 
A man whose only home now is the discarded refuse of a retail outlet on a barren lot? I think I finally understand Sally's unselfish sense of compassion and duty. I take my jean jacket off and lay it on the still body. I stand, confused, with the sound of crying ringing in my ears and a feeling of emptiness. For a second I wonder if he's dead. But there's movement again. The body shifts, the head slowly turns up, the eyes meet mine. Then I realize. It's her. My eyes fill with tears as Sally looks up at me. I knew you'd eventually return, my love, she says weakly and smiles. In her eyes I can see the response to all of my questions, and my heart aches at the obvious answer and all the lost years. I drop to the ground and hold her. The crying stops. So, there you have Spirits, a story about 6,000 words. It's one that I have um, always been very fond of. It's uh, actually a story I'd originally written a long, long time ago. Uh, and even before it got put onto paper, the story had been kicking around my head for a significantly longer time. It came from a friend of mine, um, an idea that occurred to her. I think she was on a bus going past the Phoenix Movie Theater. Uh, this is a theater on Bank Street in Ottawa. Uh, it had been closed down and boarded up by the time um, she shared the idea with me and the whole premise of the um, person tied to that spot. Uh, in any case, I wrote the story. I was meditating on um, uh, people you haven't seen in a long time and, and, and getting in contact with them again and, and all those connections that you have in your life that, uh, that you may never, uh, people you may never connect with again. The, uh, the the concept of a baby crying was a, uh, a story element I had actually used um, in a story called Being Needed. Uh, and unlike Spirits, Being Needed actually was published. It was published in the anthology Bluffs, Northeastern Ontario Stories from the Edge. And that came out um, a few years ago. And uh, again, the same premise was that haunting cry of a baby. Uh, and what it meant and, and where it came from. So it was sort of following the same uh, the same idea of the phantom crying baby. This, the genre of spirits is something that I've been interested in. It's a contemporary story. Uh, there is a subtle speculative element, uh, unlike my other um, horror fiction where the speculative element tends to be a bit stronger, or at least the horror element is stronger. This one's a bit of a departure from the normal genres that I write in. I think what was frustrating was it didn't quite fit in with the markets I would normally send my stories to, horror magazines and anthologies. But because it did contain a bit of the speculative, you know, the ghost story elements, etc., it wasn't a good fit or didn't seem to be a good fit for contemporary or literary fiction markets. But I've always felt that this was a good story, that it had interesting characters, a unique kind of mystery, and at its heart, uh, a, a story of the, the power of undying love. So given that it lives between the genres, I had so much trouble finding a home t uh, for it. I'd sent it out over the years to 16 different markets, and I, I got several near misses. That's you know when the editor um, sends a note back that they like the tale, but it didn't quite fit in with what they were looking for. So it was one of those things that continued to happen. Lawrence Hill, 
was a writer in residence at McMaster University in Hamilton, and I took advantage of the opportunity to sit down with him and, and get a critique. And this was the story I chose uh, because it was more literary in nature. I wanted to see what he thought of that with that speculative element. He commented quite positively positively on on several aspects of the story that gave me more hope that this was actually a good tale so i sent it out again this time to more literary markets and again i kept getting those near misses so at that point i realized this story may never find a home and yet it's a story that i'm really really proud of so i thought let's release it digitally looking at things like uh, smashwords and looking at things like amazon kindle releases. I looked at it and I said I, I try to send stories to a market that pays um, you know a pro rate of five cents per word. So this story at uh, 5,700 words I'd be looking at you know $280 or so to sell the story to a fiction market. But I've been trying that for years and years and years and I, I didn't want to go to sending it to a, a market where I would only be paid in copy or, or not be paid at all. I thought, well, maybe I can release it as a digital story. Maybe I can sell it for 99 cents, less than a price of coffee, good half hour or more of entertainment for someone to read. And then assuming a 70% royalty or even a 50% royalty, you know, I sell 400, 500 units and I would make the same amount of money as if selling it to a fiction market. So I thought, why not give that a shot? And while I was at it, I thought, why not release it for free on this podcast? If people have listened to this and they really, really enjoyed it and they wanted to say, hey, thanks for the entertainment. Thanks for entertaining me for half an hour. I think that's worth at least 99 cents. In which case, if that's the case, go ahead and buy it. Please check it out. Go to Amazon Kindle, search Mark Leslie, look for Spirits. You can buy it there. It's available on Smashwords. Should also be available through a variety of other sources such as Kobo Books, uh, Sony, Diesel, wherever good, wherever good um, electronic ebook or ebook shorts uh, can be found. But in any case, I thought it was a worthwhile risk. I thought, check it out, see what I can do. What's the worst that can happen? I guess the worst that can happen is I spend a bit of time on this and no one reads it. So there you have it. So this has been episode 18 of Prelude to a Scream, the story that you heard with Spirits. Again, if you liked it, please check it out. Please feel free to thank me by going and purchasing a copy. Uh, ideally, um, that would be cool. If you're not willing to do that, then uh, then go online, find where you can see the ebook available, and comment on it positively. Give me a good comment on iTunes because you like this audio tale, or give me a good comment on uh, any place where you see spirits available as an ebook. Uh, that'll help out because if you enjoyed it, hey, you may as well share that with someone, right? You can also check out my other work if you're interested. One Hand Screaming is a collection of my short stories and poems, mostly all previously published. It is still available on all the regular places. It's also available, several of the stories from that collection are available in the previous episodes of Prelude to Scream podcast, so if you haven't checked them out, feel free to do that. Um, you can also check out, I was the editor of uh, Campus Chills, which is an anthology of 13 horror stories. I co-wrote one of them with Kimberly Footit. But the anthology has uh, 12 other horror stories set on campuses across Canada and by a fantastic cast of writers that I'm honored to, uh, to, to get to uh, hang out with in the pages of that anthology. Also edited a science fiction anthology, North of Infinity 2, 
back in 2006, which is still um, available uh, in some places, which is kind of neat to see. And I have a novel, I Death, coming out in hardcover in November 2012. You can find me online at markleslie.ca, markleslie.blogspot.com, via Twitter, at markleslie. Um, you can also email me, mark at markleslie.ca. Love to hear from you. This podcast is posted at preludetoascream.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in episode 19. You've been listening to Prelude to a Scream, podcast fiction by Mark Leslie. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons 2.0 non-commercial, no derivatives license, which basically means feel free to copy it as many times as you want and give it to as many thousands of people you can. Music has been provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful night.